Section two of Beacon Lights of History, Volume eleven American Founders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Preliminary Chapter, Part two. The first thing we note among these New Englanders was their town meetings, derived from the ancient folk mote, in which they elected their magistrates and imposed upon themselves the necessary taxes for schools, highways, and officers of the law. They formed self-governed communities who selected for rulers their ablest and fittest men, marked for their integrity and intelligence, grave, austere, unselfish, and incorruptible. Money was of little account in comparison with character. The earliest settlers were the picked and chosen men of the yeomanry of England, and generally thrifty and prosperous. Their leaders had had high social positions in their English homes, and their ministers were chiefly graduates of the universities, some of whom were fine scholars in both Hebrew and Greek, had been settled in important parishes, and would have attained high ecclesiastical rank had they not been nonconformists, opposed to the ritual rather than the theological tenets of the English church as established by Elizabeth. Of course they were Calvinists, more rigid even than their brethren in Geneva. The Bible was to them the ultimate standard of authority, civil and religious. The only restriction on suffrage was its being conditioned on church membership. They aspired, probably from Calvinistic influence, but aspired in vain, to establish a theocracy, borrowed somewhat from that of the Jews. I do not agree with Mr. John Fiske in his able and interesting history of The Beginnings of New England, that the Puritan appealed to reason. I think that the Bible was their ultimate authority in all matters pertaining to religion. As to civil government, the reason may have had a great place in their institutions, but these grew up from their surroundings rather than from study or the experience of the past. There was more originality in them than it is customary to suppose. They were the development of Old England life in New England, but grew in many respects away from the parent stock. The next thing of mark among the colonists was their love of learning. All children were taught to read and write. They had been settled at Plymouth, Salem, and Boston less than twenty years when they established Harvard College, chiefly for the education of ministers, who took the highest social rank in the colonies, and were the most influential people. Lawyers and physicians were not so well educated. As for lawyers, there was but little need of them, since disputes were mostly settled either by the ministers or the selectmen of the towns, who were the most able and respectable men of the community. What the theocratic Puritans desired the most was educated ministers and schoolmasters. In 1641, a school was established in Hartford, Connecticut, which was free to the poor. By 1642, every township in Massachusetts had a schoolmaster, and in 1665, everyone embracing 50 families, a common school. If the town had over 100 families, it had a grammar school in which Latin was taught. It is probable, however, that the idea of popular education originated with the Dutch. Elizabeth and her ministers did not believe in the education of the masses, of which we read but little until the 19th century. As early as 1582, the estates of Friesland decreed that the inhabitants of towns and villages should provide good and able reformed schoolmasters, so that when the English nonconformists dwelt in Leyden in 1609, the school, according to Motley, had become the common property of the people. The next thing we note among the colonists of New England is the confederation of towns and the representation in the legislature, or the general court. This was formed to settle questions of common interest, to facilitate commerce, to establish a judicial system, to devise means for protection against hostile Indians, to raise taxes to support the common government. The legislature, composed of delegates chosen by the towns, exercised most of the rights of sovereignty, 
especially in the direction of military affairs and the collection of revenue the governors were chosen by the people in secret ballot until the liberal charter granted by charles i was revoked and a royal governor was placed over the four confederated colonies of massachusetts plymouth connecticut and new haven this confederation was in a federal union but simply a league for mutual defense against the indians each colony managed its own internal affairs without interference from england until sixteen eighty four down to this time the colonies had been too insignificant to attract much notice in england and hence were left to develop their institutions in their own way according to the circumstances which controlled them and the dangers with which they were surrounded one thing is clear the infant colonies governed themselves and elected their own magistrates from the governor to the selectmen and this was true as well of the middle and southern as of the eastern colonies even in virginia quite as large a proportion of the people took part in elections as in massachusetts it is difficult to find any similar instance of uncontrolled self-government either in holland or england at any period of their history either the king or the parliament or the lord of the manor or the parish priest controlled appointments or interfered with them and even when the people directly selected their magistrates suffrage was not universal as it gradually came to be in the colonies with slight restrictions one of the features of the development of the american institutions another thing we notice among the colonies which had no inconsiderable influence on their growth was the use of firearms among all the people to defend themselves from hostile indians every man had his musket and powder flask and there were several periods when it was not safe even to go to church unarmed thus were the new settlers inured to danger and self-defense and bloody contests with their savage foes they grew up practically soldiers and formed a firm material for an effective militia able to face regular troops and even engage in effective operations as seen afterwards in the conquest of lewisburg by sir william pepperell a kittery merchant but for the universal use of firearms either for war or game it is doubtful if the colonies could have won their independence and it is interesting to note that while the free carrying of weapons in these later days at least is apt to result in rough lawlessness as in our frontier regions among the serious and law-abiding colonists of those early times it was not so this was probably due both to their strict religious obligations and to the presence of their wives and children the unrestricted selection of parish ministers by the people was no slight cause of new england growth and was also a peculiar custom or institution not seen in the mother country where appointment to parishes was chiefly in the hands of the aristocracy or the crown either the king or the lord chancellor or the universities or the nobility or the county squires had the gift of livings often bestowed on ignorant or worldly or inefficient men the younger sons of men of rank who made no mark and were incapable of instruction or indifferent to their duties in new england the minister of the parish was elected by the church members or congregation and if he could not edify his hearers by his sermon or if his character did not command respect his occupation was gone or his salary was not paid in consequence the ministers were generally gifted men well educated and in sympathy with the people who can estimate the influence of such religious teachers on everything that pertained to new england life and growth on morals on education on religious and civil institutions although we have traced the early characteristics of the new england colonists especially because it was in new england first and chiefly that the spirit of resistance to english oppression grew to a sentiment for independence it is not to be overlooked that the essential elements of self-controlling manhood were common throughout all the colonies 
and everywhere it seems to have grown out of the germ of a devotion to religious freedom developed on a secluded continent where men were shut in by the sea on one hand and perils from the fierce aborigines on the other the puritans of new england the hollanders of new york penn's quaker colony in pennsylvania the huguenots of south carolina the scotch-irish presbyterians of north carolina virginia maryland new jersey and pennsylvania were all of calvinistic training and came from european persecutions all were rigidly puritanical in their social and sabbatarian observances even the episcopalians of virginia where a larger norman english stock was settled with infusions of french huguenot blood and where slavery bred more men of wealth and broader social distinctions were sternly religious in their laws although far more lax and pleasure-loving in their customs everywhere this new life of englishmen in a new land developed their self-reliance their power of work their skill in arms their habit of common association for common purposes and their keen intelligent knowledge of political conditions with a tenacious grip on their rights as englishmen in the enjoyment then of unknown civil and religious liberties of equal laws and a mild government the colonies rapidly grew in spite of indian wars in new england they had also to combat a hard soil and a cold climate their equals in rugged strength in domestic virtues in religious veneration were not to be seen on the face of the whole earth they may have been intolerant narrow-minded brusque and rough in manners and with little love or appreciation of art they may have been opinionated and self-sufficient but they were loyal to duties and to their invisible king above all things they were tenacious of their rights and scrupled no sacrifices to secure them and to perpetuate them among their children it is not my object to describe the history of the puritans after they had made a firm settlement in the primeval forests down to the revolutionary war but only to glance at the institutions they created or adopted which have extended more or less over all parts of north america and laid the foundation for a magnificent empire at the close of the seven years war in seventeen sixty three which ended in the conquest of canada from the french by the combined forces of england and her american subjects the population of the colonies in new england and the middle and southern sections was not far from two millions success in war and some development in wealth naturally engendered self-confidence i apprehend that the secret and unavowed consciousness of power creating the desire to be a nation rather than a mere colony dependent on great britain or if colonies yet free and untrammeled by the home government had as much to do with the struggle for independence as the discussion of rights at least among the leaders of the people both clerical and lay the feeling that they were not represented in parliament was not of much account for more than three-quarters of the english at home had no representation at all to be represented in parliament was utterly impracticable and everybody knew it but when arbitrary measures were adopted by the english government in defiance of charters the popular orators made a good point in magnifying the injustice of taxation without representation the colonies had been marvelously prospered and if not rich they were powerful and were spreading toward the indefinite and unexplored west the seven years war had developed their military capacity it was new england troops which had taken louisbourg the charm of british invincibility had been broken by braddock's defeat the americans had learned self-reliance in their wars with the indians and had nearly exterminated them along the coast without british aid the colonists three thousand miles away from england had begun to feel their importance and to realize the difficulty of their conquest by any forces that england could command the self-exaggeration common to all new countries was universal few as the people were compared with the population of the mother country their imagination was boundless they felt if they did not clearly foresee their inevitable future 
the north american continent was theirs by actual settlement and long habits of self-government and they were determined to keep it why should they be dependent on a country that crippled their commerce that stifled their manufactures that regulated their fisheries that appointed their governors and regarded them with selfish ends as a people to be taxed in order that english merchants and manufacturers should be enriched they did not feel weak or dependent what new settlers in the western wilds ever felt that they could not take care of their farms and their flocks and everything which they owned doubtless such sentiments animated far-reaching men to whom liberty was so sweet and power so enchanting they could not openly avow them without danger of arrest until resistance was organized they contented themselves with making the most of oppressive english legislation to stimulate the people to discontent and rebellion ambition was hidden under the burden of taxation which was to make them slaves although among the leaders there was great veneration for english tradition and law the love they professed for england was rather an ideal sentiment than an actual feeling except among aristocrats and men of rank nor was it natural that the colonists especially the puritans should cherish much real affection for a country that had persecuted them and driven them away they felt that not so much from old england as new england was their home in which new sentiments had been born and new aspirations had been cultivated it was very seldom that a colonist visited england at all and except among the recent comers their english relatives were for the most part unknown loyalty to the king was gradually supplanted by devotion to the institutions which they had adopted or themselves created in a certain sense they admitted that they were still subject to great britain but 150 years of self-government had nearly destroyed this feeling of allegiance, especially when they were aroused to deny the right of the English government to tax them without their own consent. With the denial of the right of taxation by England naturally came resistance. The first line of opposition arose under a new attempt of England to enforce the Sugar Act, which was passed to prevent the American importation of sugar and molasses from the West Indies, in exchange for lumber and agricultural products it had been suffered to fall into abeyance but suddenly in seventeen sixty one the government issued writs of assistance or search warrants authorizing customs officers to enter private stores and dwellings to find imported goods not necessarily known but when even suspected to be there this was first brought to bear in massachusetts where the colonists spiritedly refused to submit and took the matter into the courts james otis a young boston lawyer was advocate for the admiralty but, resigning his commission, he appeared on behalf of the people, and his fiery eloquence aroused the colonists to a high pitch of revolutionary resolve. John Adams, who heard the speech, declared, Then and there American independence was born. Independency, however, was not yet in most men's minds, but the spirit of resistance to arbitrary acts of the sovereign was unmistakably aroused. In 1763, a no less memorable contest arose in Virginia when the king refused to sanction a law of the colonial legislature imposing a tax which the clergy were unwilling to submit to. This, too, was tested in the courts, and a young lawyer named Patrick Henry defended so eloquently the right of Virginia to make her own laws in spite of the king that his passionate oratory inflamed all that colony with the same treasonable spirit. But the center of resistance was in Boston where in 1765 the people were incited to enthusiasm by the eloquence of James Otis and Samuel Adams, in reference to still another restrictive tax, the Stamp Act, which could not be enforced except by overwhelming military forces, and was wisely repealed by Parliament. This was followed by the imposition of duties on wine, oil, fruits, glass, paper, lead, colors, and especially tea, an indirect taxation, but equally obnoxious 
An increasing popular excitement, the sending of troops, collision between the soldiers and the people in 1770 and in 1773, the rebellious act of the famous Tea Party, when citizens in the guise of Indians emptied the chests of tea on board merchantmen into Boston Harbor. Soon after, the Boston Ports Bill was passed, which shut up American commerce and created immense irritation. Then were sent to the rebellious city regiments of British troops to enforce the Acts of Parliament, and finally the troops were, at the people's expense, quartered in the town, which was treated as a conquered city. In view of these disturbances and hostile acts, the First Continental Congress of the different colonies met in Philadelphia, September 1774, and issued a petition to the King, an address to the people of Great Britain, and an address to the colonies, thus making a last effort for conciliation. The British government, obstinately refusing to listen to its own wisest counselors, replied with restraining acts, forbidding participation in the fisheries and other remunerative sea work. Moreover, it declared Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion, in consequence of which the whole province prepared for war. At the same time, the colonial legislatures promptly approved and agreed to sustain the acts of the Continental Congress nor did they neglect to appoint committees of safety for calling out Minutemen and committees of supplies for arming and provisioning them. General Gage, the British military commander in Massachusetts, attempted to destroy the collection of ammunition and stores at Concord, and in consequence, on April 19, 1775, the Battle of Lexington was fought, followed in June by that of Bunker Hill. Thus began the American Revolution, which ended in the independence of the thirteen colonies and their federal union as states under a common constitution. As the empire of the Union expanded, as power grew, as opportunities increased, so did obstructions arise and complications multiply. But what I have called the American idea, which I conceive to be liberty under law, has proved equal to all emergencies. The marvelous success with which American institutions have provided for the development of the Anglo-Saxon idea of individual independence, without endangering the common weal and rule, has been largely due to the arising of great and wise administrators of the public will. It is to a consideration of some of the chief of these notable men who have guided the fortunes of the American people from the Revolutionary period to the close of the Civil War that I invite the attention of the reader of the next two volumes. Those who have not materially modified the condition of public affairs I omit to discuss at large, eminent as have been their talents and services. Consequently, I pass by the administrations of all the presidents since Jefferson, except those of Jackson and Lincoln, the former having made a new departure in national policy, and the latter having brought to a conclusion a great war. I consider that Franklin, Hamilton, Clay, Webster, and Calhoun did more than any of the presidents, except those I have mentioned, to affect the destinies of the country, and therefore I could not omit them. There will necessarily be some repetitions of fact in discussing the relations of different men to the same group of events, but this has been so far as possible avoided, and since my aim is the portrayal of character and influence, Rather than the narration of historical annals, I have omitted vast numbers of interesting details, selecting only those of salient and vital importance. End of section 2